And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge, and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. Today we're talking with Tina Rasmussen, and Tina, often with guests, uh, the names are already an interesting start-off point, and I think your surname is is kind of interesting. Uh, could you tell us something about it? Does it have a history? Yes, it's Danish, so I'm a quarter Danish, but I, like many Americans, I'm a quarter, I'm a lot of things, a quarter Italian, Swiss, French, and German. Okay. So I'm basically an American mutt, the way many of us are. And, right. And, um, yes, but I, I have, I was actually very close to my Danish family and my Italian family being very ethnically different. And um, my grandfather immigrated from Denmark on a boat when he was 16 with $6 in his pocket. Mm. And my grandmother's parents immigrated from Italy. Wow. So I'm I'm only a few generations out on that side of the family. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's nice to to have that connection then, isn't it? Because so many Americans lose it and then they end up tracing back through the family tree looking for some origin story. But for you, it's it's still there to some degree. It is, yeah. All those um, ancestors spoke their original languages, so I heard those languages and you know sang songs in them, which I don't actually know what the words meant, but. Um, but yes, I was close to my heritage in those in both the Danish and and Italian. So, like when I go to Italy, I just love it because I feel so at home there, and um, it reminds me of my Italian ancestry and Denmark too. Yeah, yeah, and that's an interesting aspect of identity, I think, especially uh, you know when you get to middle age and, and onwards. Um, even for Buddhists, I think, you know, thinking about the role of that kind of uh, those roots, however tangible or intangible they are, can be an interesting process, right? Right. What does it really all mean, if anything? Mm-hmm. Okay, so look, um, Tina, we're going to be talking about practice. Uh, I prepared a few questions, and there are a few topics that I'd like to explore with you. Um, I had a listen to uh, a conversation you had with Buddha at the gas pump. I don't know how old that conversation was, but I, I found it interesting for a variety of reasons. And it got me thinking about a couple of themes, in particular, uh, generational differences and, and some of the challenges in branching out beyond Buddhism and exploring different practice traditions. So we'll, we'll see what your thoughts are about that. Um, let's talk a little bit about your your current relationship with practice, though. I mean, you've been you've been at meditation, you've been at Buddhism, you've been at other practices, too for quite a long time. How would you re- evaluate where you are today in your relationship with things like meditation, sitting practice, and, and paying attention to your own, I don't know what language you'd like to use, but maybe maturation or, or continuing growth, development, and understanding of, of what it means to be human and what it means to be a practitioner of some sort? Yeah, well, I, I had the good fortune to start meditating at the age of 13. So um, it's been a long time. It's been many decades. And um, 
I still meditate every day. I've meditated every day without missing a day for 30 years, or maybe it's more than that. I think it's more than that at this point. Um, because I find that, well, one thing I like it, I mean, that as a bottom line, I, I enjoy doing it. Um, but there's something about that consistency. I mean, it's changed a lot over the years, what it means, what it is. But I do feel that um, regardless of where one is in their trajectory, I think it's still a beneficial thing to do daily. Um, and But my practice... You know, I've done so much, so much deep retreat practice that um, at some point, really, my the growing edge for me is what's happening off the cushion, and how much is can I live from what I've realized? So that's really the the growing edge of my practice at this point is that not that I don't still do long retreats or sit daily, but um, at which I do both of those, you know, regularly. Um, in addition to teaching, but it's the integration and the embodiment for me that's really my um, growing edge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you've managed to sit that consistently, which is, is quite a feat considering life is always full of ups and downs, I, I mean, you must have made a few sacrifices along the way, right? Yeah, lots, lots of them. I mean, part of what I think has enabled me to do that. And for most of those years, I worked full time in an extremely demanding job in the business world. So it's not like I've done this, oh, she's a Buddhist teacher, it's easy. No, you know, until really, I'm still doing a little tiny bit of work in the business world even now, but there were decades where I was working 40 to 60 hours a week with senior executives where I'd have to get up at four in the morning and drive for an hour and sit in the parking lot and meditate before I went in to lead a day-long event with 25 very high-functioning, demanding executives, you know. And so I did it in the car, in the parking lot. Or when I worked in, in downtown San Francisco, I had to ride public transportation. Again, I had to get up early, walk with my dress and my you know, athletic shoes and my briefcase to the office, I would do it on public transit. And, you know, it's not, a lot of people think the only way you can sit is if you have the perfect, pristine, quiet conditions with your altar in front of you and, you know, none of your family members around. Well, that's, that's great. And it is nice to be able to meditate like that. That's part of why we go on retreat is to have those conditions. But, um, you know, if, if you limit it to that, you're, you're going to find days when you can't. You just don't have time. So that's where, to me, learning to meditate in different situations it just helps. I didn't realize at the time, but now it's helped me with the whole off-the-cushion integration because I don't have to have pristine conditions to have my inner experience be available. You know, and so that when you say sacrifice, part of it is I sacrificed ideal conditions. Um, and then all the long retreat practice I did, of course, there were a lot of sacrifices involved in taking a year long solo retreat and, you know, things like that. Um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of sacrifice involved, but I don't really think of it like that. 
Yeah, good. And I, I think you're picking up on a theme there, which is, is important, especially in long-term practice, which is examining and coming to terms with some of the expectations and ideals that we have and that we often project on to practice. That can certainly be an obstacle, I think, both in terms of people evolving their sense of what they're doing, whether it's on cushion or off cushion, but also finding the kind of joy and pleasure in discipline that you, you, you're alluding to in, in what you're sharing. But talking about obstacles more more broadly, I, I think it's one of those things that uh, it would be helpful for everybody to hear more about from teachers. I mean, I think we're still living in the kind of uh, the trails of certain ideals of um, the, the teacher as being impeccable or perfect in some way or, or not having their own struggles and, and strife. Would you be happy to talk about perhaps a couple of the, the larger obstacles you've you've come up against in your practicing life and that you've managed to to overcome to some degree? Yeah, well, are you meaning obstacles externally to practicing or obstacles internally or which? Either. either. Yeah, yeah, either. Okay. Yeah, well, externally, it's probably the one that most people have, which is I can't find time to do it. You know, I mean, I work with people all the time who are trying to really establish a daily practice and they're well motivated, but they just can't do it or or it's not a good sitting every day. And so then it's like, well, I didn't have a very good sitting yesterday. Maybe today I'll just skip it. And now all of a sudden two or three days have gone by and they haven't practiced. And so, I mean, to me, that's one of the things I think early on that I got Part of why I started meditating every day, I was in my late 20s, and um, uh, I just found that the days I meditated were better. There was something about them that was better than the days I didn't. That's really what it came down to. And so I, I really resolved to practice every day, regardless of whether it was, quote, a good sitting or not. And I think that is... Like I will often in my talks talk about this being like brushing your teeth. I mean, would you really go three or four days without brushing your teeth? You know, you don't you don't look in the mirror while you're brushing your teeth and go, wow, today's really a great tooth brushing. Maybe I'll do this again tomorrow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, we're just doing it every day because it's good for us. And now we know through the neuroscience, you know, between two and five hundred studies a year on meditation it's good for you, you know? So that's, to me, I didn't, we didn't have the, the science back then, but that's part of it for me was when I got that this is good for me and whether I do it every day isn't going to be based on, oh, did I have a good sitting every single day? You know, part of it, it's like exercise, like lifting weights. There's going to be some days where you're, it's going to hurt a little bit or it's going to be harder and that's part of what's reprogramming our consciousness mm -hmm. is having to lift the weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking about science. I mean, this is one of the things that was in the description of you on the Buddha, the gas pump interview, uh, was that you were a participant in one of the Yale neuroscience studies on, on meditation. What came out of that study and what did they discover about Tina? What did and maybe what do you make of the results of that? It wasn't like, oh, let's study Tina. I was part of a study of advanced meditators. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, to be clear about what it is, I'm actually going to my website right now 
to look it up and it is on there downloadable if anybody wants to actually look at it. I'll read you the title. Effortless Awareness, Using Real-Time Neurofeedback to Investigate Correlates of Posterior Singular Cortex Activity in Meditator's Self-Report. And then basically my take on it, and this was done by Dr. Judson Brewer, who um, is now at the, uh, the Center for Mindfulness at UMass. He was at, at Yale then. He was the director there. Um, but basically I took away that... Um, the study was about how concentration meditation deactivates the sense of the me mm. through skillful balanced effort. That was, I think, maybe the subtitle or something, or maybe that was my take on the subtitle. But um, they don't, when you do a study like that, like at the afterwards, I said, you know, did, how was it? You know, I mean, what happened? I didn't really know even what they were researching when it was done. Mm -hmm. And they said, they said, we can't really say, but basically it, it, it proved our hypothesis. Mm -hmm. That was all they really told me. Okay. Um, so, I mean, anybody who wants to see the article, um, it's, um, it's, it was about the activation and deactivation of the posterior cingulate cortex, the PCC. And um, some people think that's the center of the sense of the of self. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's kind of cool, actually, that I was in a study that shows that meditation can impart in, in or, you know, contribute to the deactivation of, of the sense of the me, which is really what Buddhism is all about. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, but they had meditators from all traditions. It wasn't just Buddhist meditators. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that's yeah. what happened. And I, I had the whole EEG set up on my head. I've got a picture of it on my website. And um, it was great to be able to contribute to the understanding because, you know, it's harder for them to find advanced meditators than it is to find, you know, new or beginning or intermediate. There's just more people. Mm -hmm. to pick from yeah well another thing that you're perhaps better known for is your work on well your collaboration on a book on jhanas and jhanic states and concentration states now one reason for mentioning this is because it gives us an insight into what i think is a is a great contribution you've made uh, i have a copy of the book myself and it's a it's a very interesting introduction for a beginning and, and middling practitioners into thinking uh, about concentration states and why they might want to get involved in developing uh, their relationship with them as well. Concentration is one phrase that it might be worth unpacking briefly. Do you continue to teach that kind of practice? And what do you think are some of the benefits of, of spending serious time developing the capacity to focus your attention and develop deeper states of concentration for extended periods of time? I do still teach this regularly. I both online and in person at, you know, day longs, talks, retreats. So yes, I do teach it. And um, there's a lot of benefits. Uh, I mean, for one thing, the Buddha did this practice himself, not only leading up to his awakening and enlightenment, but after. So you got to wonder why would somebody who's fully enlightened keep doing a practice? Well, because he kept recommending it to people over and over 
And at the moment of death, when he could have chosen to do anything, this was the practice he was doing. So we can't know why, but just if we think of him as a role model, that's fairly compelling. It is to me, at least. So, um, so why? Why did he think it was so important and talk about it in 60 to 80 percent of the suttas, which is what I've been told by scholars? Why did he recommend doing that practice? Well, now that I've been teaching for 15 years, I can see why in students um, and with the neuroscience, this is in the category of focused attention meditation. Basically, what it's doing is a few things. One is that we are deconditioning. You are coming back to one object of awareness and turning away from everything else, not being aversive to everything else, but we're building a muscle of the capacity to direct attention at something and not go off compulsively into our thought patterns. So that's the first thing we can see when we try to do concentration a focused attention type of meditation is that we will see whatever our compulsive thought patterns are that are so ingrained in our consciousness. We have so many synapses that have been run over trillions of times that are now very thick. Going over those same patterns, we're going to see what they are. So that's one thing. We're going to see our, in Buddhism, hindrances and defilements quickly. And by just coming back, we're deconditioning those grooves in our consciousness. So whatever we're finding that when we sit, we're compulsively going into those thought patterns, we're basically challenging that. Now with the neuroscience, we know that we're actually making those neural pathways thinner. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just think about a trail that was walked over, you know, 100,000 times, and now it's only walked over 10 times, it's going to you know, not be as deep. Grass is going to start filling that in. So this is really what's happening. And, um, and then potentially we can, there's different, three different levels of concentration that I won't get into. But um, as that becomes more as the mind stream becomes unified, um, it can become laser like and in more advanced stages, it can become laser-like to the point that it cuts through our normal perception of reality into the mystery. So just from a, from a practical standpoint, you know, with our tech devices and, and all of the things that are actually changing our gray matter, which is a little scary that we're all guinea pigs that we haven't signed up to be in this experiment called constant tech stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, this is offsetting that. It, which is just practical and also bringing serenity. I mean, the word samate actually means both concentration and serenity, and people often forget that. Mm -hmm. But it's it's um, deconditioning. We're basically getting a software upgrade, and we're the programmer and the program. Mm -hmm. Just by coming back to this object, we're deconditioning those compulsive thought patterns. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, the other part of the Samatha practice is that we're really, it's, it's not a practice where we're investigating the body and the thoughts. We're not investigating. We're directing our consciousness to the formless, to the unconditioned mystery that's beyond the body and the personality. So that in itself has a lot of benefits in terms of um, not only transforming the personality, but accessing the transcendent 
nature that we are at our depth. Well, that's an interesting leap off point then towards the other topic I wanted to get into with you. How shall I say this? Let me let me start from here. There are two things that come to my mind in listening to what you were, were saying, and one is the the interest or the capacity of the younger generation to engage with these kinds of practices, uh, especially as, as, as you were uh, pointing to with the technology having the impact it's having on attention span and levels of concentration in the general population. So that's certainly interesting. I kind of get this feeling that at some point there's going to be a proper revolt and reaction and, and people are going to start sort of uh, hunting out or hunting down new kinds of spaces where they can detach from that constant stimulation and and maybe there'll be a revival of uh, traditional concentration style meditation practices or at least something else. I, I don't know, culture's interesting in that way. But the other element that comes to my mind in listening to what you were saying was this um, this description of what we are, right, which is one of those questions that's a kind of avoided in early Buddhism. In later Buddhism, we end up with concepts such as Buddha nature, true nature, or the ground of being, this kind of thing. That's led to a sort of closeness between Buddhism and Advaita or Neo-Advaita in the West, in particular in America. And I think it's something that we've seen a lot with um, the boomer generation. I'm kind of interested in, in how that generation is managing some of the potential conflict between those two different traditions. And I'd like to share the work of Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, are you familiar with him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's quite interesting. I, I, I have different kinds of conversations with different kinds of people, and, and some people think he's uh, an extremely conservative practitioner and teacher of Buddhism who's perhaps overly conservative to some degree. But he's quite adamant that there is an unresolvable conflict between non-dual systems of practice and thought and then the earlier schools of Buddhism. And he picks up on something which I find interesting, which is this desire for a unifying principle. To some degree, we could define a lot of the 1960s generation, their relationship with religion and spirituality and practice more broadly as being characterized by a profound desire for unity Buddhism, though, challenges us with this idea of non-self or no-self. Could you talk to that for a moment? What's your relationship with those two opposing views? There being no true essential self, no necessary ground of being, and the fact that there may appear to be something of that kind in these deeper states of concentration or or just in the process of being a long-term practitioner and teacher. Yeah, well, I I, I um, am aware of the difference between Theravadan Buddhism and, and the later, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, where they at least have something, you know, Buddha nature and the idea of it, there being something that's more describable, whereas the Buddha just said what it wasn't mostly, because I think he didn't want people to conceptualize. I mean, I'm making that up, but scholars would have a better sense of it. I, I you know, I, I like the different perspectives that are out there. So I don't take exception with somebody like Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is conservative and traditional. I mean, he's, you know, a monastic. Most monastics are more traditional, although there's a range still within that community as well. Um, for me, what I speak from experience. 
So just to be clear, I'm not a scholar, I'm not a historian, I speak from experience. So what I'm going to say is from experience, mm-hmm. um, that they're the traditions, the Eastern traditions, and in particular Buddhism, emphasizes emptiness as a leading, the leading characteristic, especially in Theravadan Buddhism, but, but all of Buddhism whereas the Western traditions focus more on unity. And so if you, you know, this is unity and the Western traditions being theistic and so on. So this is, you know, the big departure point. But when you get, when you start actually um, for a person who can, who experiences non-duality, there are, and I have a whole talk on this that I'm just starting to flesh out this teaching called Dimensions of Non-Duality, where in Buddhism, we actually have formless dimensions. All, As far as I know, at least the Theravada and the Vajrayana um, lineages have this acknowledgement of this. And there are different ways of experiencing formless realms or non-duality, um, like I feel that in the diamond approach, they have an excellent map of the different ways of experiencing non-duality that can explain the differences between traditions. Because they're pointing at, they're all pointing at non-duality that is something beyond the sense of the me that we can know that we are. And some of those experiences, one dimension is, two of the dimensions are more about emptiness and three are more about unity. So it's kind of like the blind man and the elephant. They're all pointing to an elephant, but one's feeling a tail and says, no, it's a rope. And the other says, is rubbing the side of the elephant saying, no, it's a sandpapery wall. And the others say, no, it's, it's a suction cup, you know, the one with the, the trunk. So are, who's right and who's wrong? So to me, this is really there's a way to understand the fact that different traditions are pointing to different dimensions of non-duality and focusing on that and not the others. And even within Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism is focusing on a dimension that I would call the absolute, where there's just nothing. It's the, the ultimate dimension that is the deepest, that it has no, um, that is the dimension that other dimensions emerge from. And Tibetan Buddhism is focusing on on what I would call the the non-conceptual and the pure presence dimensions, which are more a little bit closer. Pure presence is more about unity, which is more in Hinduism. And the non-conceptual is the the clear, um, more Rigpa-like um, experience where it isn't about the black, but you can function from it more, which is why in Tibetan Buddhism, we have eyes open, we have more functioning, whereas in Theravadan, eyes are closed. There's more of a monastic tradition. I mean, all of this to me explains why there are differences in understanding and nobody's really wrong. Everybody's right. and Nobody's wrong <laughs> from that perspective. In a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, so this, I mean, this is a, a long answer to your question, but this is how I understand it. And all of this is coming from my own experience. 
I'm not speaking theoretically. I, these are the formless dimensions in the jhanas, and also they are ways of experiencing non-duality without jhana, because mm -hmm. non-duality is available in any moment. Right now it's available. Mm -hmm. We don't have to have concentration. The advantage of jhanas, which are concentrative absorptions, is that they're stable and repeatable. And I think that's why the Buddha thought so highly of them. If, if there's a certain expectation of certain kinds of experiences or certain kinds of possibilities, then I think that shapes actually um, the kind of curvature of the subjective as we practice. And I think there is something radical perhaps that's still missing from the kind of view you're, you're sharing that maybe uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's pointing to, maybe not, of course, uh, certainly if we talk about experiences, it's almost unanswerable as a question, but I think there are certain tendencies tendencies that have been present among certain approaches to Buddhism and spiritual practice more broadly that reflect wider culture. And one of those elements is, well, it is reflected in that idea of the desire for unity, which is a resistance to ending or ceasing of existence. And I wonder if to some degree that non-duality or the idea that there is some kind of uh, ultimate nature that we can discover and relax into and be could also end up becoming a, a way of avoiding the raw experience of actually finding that there is no true me anywhere in there right that actually emptiness is empty and that ceasing is the ending and ceasing of things certainly i would agree with you that out of that something continues in the sense that we are still here physically consciousness is still there and there's a sense of matthew or tina i think there may be some kind of collective resistance to that experience of the other of the kind of the unpleasantness of saying actually there is nothing and there are moments of, of fear or discomfort or terror that can emerge in seeing that vacuousness or that black hole that can be there too in those deep dark recesses of, of uncovering these patterns of meanness and I-ness. Does any of that make sense to you? Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you asked about no self and the other question. To me, yeah. no self and non-duality are a little different because no self is really about mm -hmm. the internal experience of what am I and seeing the emptiness of the cycle, you know, basically seeing that the me that we thought we were was is a mental construct. And yes, when people like with, with the jhanas, they are non-dual experiences, and so they aren't awakening, but they're, they're helping a person to get acclimated mm -hmm. to awakening, basically. Um, and so the me goes dormant. And, and what I found consistently is that when people get close to that threshold, fear comes up. And because there is the me is basically made up of defense mechanisms, self images and beliefs. And it without those when the me goes dormant, if those aren't present, it's extremely it feels psychologically extremely, extremely vulnerable. And so whether one, I mean, this could be somebody who's been seeking enlightenment for 30 years and they're still going to feel fear when that happens until there's enough. It's like going to 14,000 feet, you know, or to a high altitude. We have to get acclimated. And then at some point we're used to it and it's no big deal. That's what 
being without the me is like. And so there's a natural process, which is to me part of the compassion of the nature of reality is that it doesn't usually happen until somebody has enough trust that the, we can't force the me to surrender and relax. You can't like make yourself relax. It's impossible because if there's a forcing, there's no relaxing. So there has to be enough trust that it relaxes on its own. And that comes through experience that the me can be dormant and it's okay. So that is no self to me. Non-duality can applies to that too, but it also applies to everything in one's experience, which would mean the outside world, other people, all phenomena one is experiencing. Um, that is a much, much broader application also between non-duality, between what one would consider to be oneself and the ground that's manifesting everything. So that is a much, much bigger jump than uh, no self, which normally would be the first thing somebody would experience would be getting oriented to that feeling that um, an experience that the me that one thought one was, was basically a mental construct. And so, you know, this is where, yeah, there's fear. And, um, uh, but I, I don't see, again, my understanding, which um, includes the, that there are dimensions of non-duality that one can experience. There is a lot more comfort with dimensions that are more about presence, which have to do with unity, than those that are about that um, the mystery of the emptiness that's basically like antimatter almost, or the void, um, is much more, it's a harder um, approach because that even it's, it's, if you think of a black hole, even concepts get absorbed by that. And that's, I think, why the Buddha said it wouldn't describe it. Because even concepts become like, again, if you imagine a black hole, they just get absorbed so that there's really nothing there. But but this is where, to me, with, at the deepest, if you imagine a coin with two sides, that mystery of the ground is the potentiality from which everything manifests. So in a way, you could say it is unity. <laughs> so to me, emptiness and unity are really two sides of one coin. And if one only has an experience of one or the other, it's incomplete. So I, I hear what you're saying about, yeah, it, approaching unity is a way easier approach to the ego self than emptiness. Way easier. Well, I think there's another risk there as well, and maybe you'll have something to, to say to this, which is that because of the fear and the terror that can emerge when you confront uh, the loss of that, that, that reference point, uh, I think there is a tendency, or there may be a tendency, to fill that void with some kind of idea of a true self or of a or of something similar that, that comes under the title of true self because it acts as a way to avoid having to to stay there 
or to spend more time in that experience of selflessness. There might be a tension there that plays out within the relationship that many Westerners have between Buddhism and Neo-Advaita, between non-dualism and uh, the lack of an essential self some, some, some place. But uh, let's do this. I do want to talk to you a little bit about some of the the attraction that's there, I think, for many uh, many older teachers towards both Advaita or Neo Advaita and Buddhism. Can can I ask you a slightly different question? Why do you think why do you think so many uh, Boomer generation American Buddhist teachers have been and continue to be drawn towards simultaneously Buddhism and Neo Advaita? Why do you think that's the case? Well, I'm wondering, you know, you may be describing Neo-Advaita as um, something that is about unity. And I don't see, like, one of the very popular teachers is Adyashantu, who came from a Zen background. So I don't see that there's a huge gap between his, how he talks about things and Buddhism. I mean, he was in Zen for... You know, he's probably done a hundred Zen sashins. So he's not exactly a Hindu, you know. I mean, so you may be, when you're using that term, you may be implying that it automatically has unity as at its core. And I don't think, like, that's not the experience, I don't think, of a lot of people who are, who cross over between Buddhism and that movement, like the science of non-duality, you know, it's it's a hybrid of lots of different orientations. But if you take someone like Adyashanti, you know, he's very Buddhist in his or in how he um, in his own experience and understanding. I mean, the person who authorized him to teach was a Buddhist teacher. So, you know, he so that's where I don't necessarily see a huge gap. You take someone like. Um, Gangaji, she's from a Hindu lineage. But really, when you're talk, when people are talking about it, um, there's, I think, again, because in my understanding, for example, in Buddhism, I'll just tell you the four formless dimensions that to me are non-duality within Buddhism, base of boundless space, base of boundless consciousness, which to me feels like unity base of nothingness, and the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Those are the four formless dimensions, which I feel are non-dual, all of them. And the base of boundless consciousness feels a whole lot like unity. So it's not that that's not within Buddhism. It's just not the deepest dimension. So, you know, I think you may be drawing a really, a, a little bit of an artificial, like, line that is very that isn't quite such a line it's actually a lot more fluid even within buddhism because if somebody experiences say for example somebody has a non-dual experience and they they, but they're popping into the the dimension of um, infinite consciousness that's going to feel a lot more like presence and unity like more of a hindu-ish experience and that's they're still within Buddhism. It's not like there's different dimensions of non-duality based on your on your tradition. There's reality, and you know, it, it, different 
lineages and different traditions are pointing at different aspects of reality, but that doesn't mean that just because I'm a Buddhist, I might not happen to pop into the, the base of boundless consciousness. So what if I'm a Buddhist and my teachers are all saying, no, no, you're supposed to be experiencing emptiness. But really what I happen to be popping into is the base of boundless consciousness. It's going to feel more, a lot more like unity or presence. So to me, it's like the idea that people are searching it out because they can't tolerate the emptiness. That may be true because the emptiness is really hard to tolerate. Um, but they could actually be having a genuine experience that's non-dual. It just doesn't fit within the main, you know, Buddhism's feeling the trunk and describing the trunk of the elephant and the person happens to be touching the side of the elephant. Doesn't mean that their experience is invalid. Okay, yeah. So that's that's how I would say it. You know, I mean, this is this is in the the formless dimensions are are you know pretty well detailed in um, traditional Buddhism. So they're not. You know, I think the idea that they're somehow um, deluded, they're deluded and they're trying to find unity to avoid emptiness. Again, that may be true, but they, they, what they're, what people who are experiencing that are experiencing may actually be valid even within Buddhism, even within Theravadan Buddhism. Cuckoo as they say in Italy, or hey there, if you're American, and you're right, mate, if you're from the UK. Look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations and all that hard work we put into them? If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana if it makes it more palatable. You know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget the hard-working men and women are giving up their time, energy and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. And that includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com, scroll down on the right for the donation button and do your part. Thank you. It's all interesting, and I guess one of the things that I've always been interested in personally is just how spiritual practices, whether Buddhist or otherwise, uh, can be put to a different range of uses, right? We can employ them in ways that they're presented, that a teacher gives, that a, a sutra or a, or a more contemporary text might indicate, but we can also put them to other uses as well. And I think it's interesting where people get lost or get stuck or find themselves in difficulty or or the comfort point where a person says, I don't want to go beyond that, I'm going to stay here because it's perhaps too much. And I think it's interesting to think about that both for the individual practitioner, but also for groups and even the collective, right, for the American Buddhists or Western Buddhists or, or Buddhists worldwide and and for, for non-Buddhists too. But uh Time is, is, is never enough with these things. And I do want to ask you one question because 
You've been using a couple of terms throughout. They're both still problematic. I don't know what you think about it, but I'd like to give you a very small challenge. Um, you've mentioned awakening, uh, enlightenment's popped up too, and I, I think you're probably well aware that these terms can mean many, many different things. I think it's quite useful sometimes to try and reframe them or come up with another way of describing them without using either word. So if you were to describe to somebody who's a little bit doubtful or suspicious or, or critical of the whole idea of enlightenment or awakening, could you describe it in another way to them that might make sense? Yeah, to me, awakening, there is a difference between the two and how I okay. use the terms. Awakening is the, then there are stages, and I, I do use the Theravada model. I think it's the best, most easy to use one out there of the stages where there's four. So just to say that. So um, awakening is the when the ego self is seen through at a level that is permanent and doesn't reverse. Even if the person becomes re-identified with the ego self, that they never really believe it's true. And that in Buddhism would be stream entry. So that's to me awakening. People will have tastes of the ego self going dormant, which would be tastes of non-duality, can be very momentary, like in Dzogchen, that's really what they're going for. And in Zen, they're going for that is these tastes. And then the tastes, we get comfortable with it, the tastes can become more prolonged if one's concentration is strong enough. If you don't have the concentration, you're never going to have anything stable happening. So this is where the Samatha practice becomes, when you become a more advanced practitioner, gets even more important because it's not going to become stable without that faculty of our awareness. So that would be awakening is basically when one really knows. It's not an experience. It's a shift of identity. So if it's like I'm having awakening experiences or non-dual experiences, that's not, that's tastes. And those are really important for somebody's unfoldment. But that's not awakening. Those are experiences. It's when it becomes permanent. And, you know, that could happen through cessation, which is the traditional Theravada understanding. In other traditions, it's, cessation isn't necessarily the way it can happen. It can happen other ways. Um, but to me, how, regardless of how it happens, that's, the, that's a marker which changes one's perception of reality permanently. That would be awakening in my understanding. And then I feel there are stages that happen that correspond with the Theravada model that where this deepens and one's the amount and this is where the embodiment becomes so important because if you aren't working your personality material, there's just too much personality material even after awakening for it to really ever become stable without working that. I think that's historically part of the problem why we have scandals and other things is people think that the first stage of awakening is like, oh, I've arrived. This is it. And it's not, as we can see from the many scandals. I mean, like I've said, one, one of the things I, I really have thought about, like, okay, that person who slept with their student, how many thousands of times did they have to have that thought before they acted on it? 
and it never occurred to them that they needed to talk to someone or work this and go, gosh, I wonder why I think I keep thinking about doing something that's going to cause harm and is a power abuse. They never once thought to go and talk to somebody and get some help because they had this mistaken belief that just because they had a legitimate awakening experience that all their personality material is gone. And then they had to shore that up by pretending. It's total spiritual bypassing, even after awakening. So, I mean, that's so to me, that's awakening and there are stages that I could get into. Enlightenment is when there's no personality material left at all. I think that's extremely rare. I, I don't think I've ever met any teacher who I feel is at that stage who's living. Well, the second one is a is a tricky one, and we could probably spend time talking about that, but <laughs> that, that's, we don't have that. But uh, I just to go back to what you were saying about teachers uh, abusing students. I, yeah, I think there are two other points always worth mentioning there: the, the awakening or no awakening, whatever we want to call it. I think uh, awakening probably doesn't mean very much if uh, if a person behaves in that way afterwards. I think the person is clearly suffering from delusion and lacks compassion and basic humanity but it's also a a social and a cultural problem right because if there's a a sangha or a community of people around this person that are not picking up on this kind of dysfunctional behavior the the problem goes beyond him or her and i guess we're seeing some of the consequences of that as uh, some sanghas are, are waking up to the fact that they can't invest in this idea of the perfect infallible teacher but uh there it is uh, I don't know if you've got two minutes, and maybe I can ask you one final question, because you talk about the ego self. And I, I think, you know, if you're going to talk about transcending that to some degree, you you have to define that too. Could you do that in, in two minutes for us, Tina? Or would that be asking too much? Uh, I'll try. I've got a clock in front of me, so I'll, I'll try to um, okay. keep it short. Yeah, the ego self is the, the um, it's a psychological construct that's necessary for the human experience, in my view. I don't think it's a mistake. As far as we know, every human's had it, including the Buddha. So I, I, I think it's more healthy to see it as, as a stage of human development that isn't an endpoint necessarily, that we can go beyond it. But for self-reflective capacity, we need it. Otherwise, we'd be like animals who may be one with everything, but they don't know it. We can know it. That's what's unique about humans. And now through psychology in the last hundred years, we can actually see how it's how it functions, how it's structured in a more mechanical way. It's made up of um, self-images, of what I am, defense mechanisms that got instituted, a lot of them prior to the age of six, like kids two or three, they don't have a me. That's why you have to say mommy's going to the store. You can't say I'm going to the store because they don't know their, they can't really distinguish yet who is you and who is themselves. You know, so these defense mechanisms get put in place that psychologically help us feel um, that we will be okay. Things that get rewarded or not rewarded, punished by in our environment, we shape to become that. And then those become part of the me and then beliefs. So those are all the things that make up the me. 
And also there's the inner critic that keeps the me in place because it's reinforcing internally our um, compliance with those self-images defenses. So if we start breaking free from them, it'll say, no, do that. And there's even a spiritual superego who makes us try to look like when we get through the the first layer of the ego, then we get a spiritual ego and superego. That means I'm supposed to look like this as a spiritual practitioner and it'll force me to keep conforming to that, but it's still basically egoic. Because I mean, if you look at spiritual groups, it's so interesting. They all look similar to founders. <laughs> well, and if you deviate too much from that, you don't get the social support. You get criticized. But the ground of being isn't picking a religion. So there's whole new layers to work through once we get through the basic egoic material. But yeah, that's I probably went over my two minutes, three minutes, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's what the me is made up of. And it's there because psychologically, it's all layered on the survival instinct. To have a human experience, we have a body, the body has to survive for us to have a human experience. If we don't have any survival instinct, the body isn't going to survive. And we are in a physical world where the body can be harmed. And what happens is our psychological self gets laminated to that so that when our psychological self gets threatened, we feel like we're going to die. And that's why we defend ourselves. That's why we defend it so extremely, because they get they become almost like one. And all this has to come under the enlightenment drive if we're really going to wake up. The enlightenment drive has to become stronger than the survival instinct. And there it is. And there it is. <laughs> that's, that's now three and a half minutes, Tina. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Matthew. No worries, no worries. So you've been listening to a conversation with Tina Rasmussen and the book, that I mentioned before, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, is Practicing the Jhanas. And that was actually published way back in 2009, but it's uh, definitely worth a look if you're interested in the topic. And Tina's website is Luminous Mind Sangha, where you can find out more about her work and other conversations too. Tina, thank you for giving up a bit of your time to speak with us today. Thanks for the invitation, Matthew. I, I enjoyed the conversation and I appreciate the um the, the challenges too. It's good to have a, a robust dialogue. This is a quick tag on note just to say thank you to those very kind folks who heard the message, got the call, and did their part to donate to the project that is the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Your donations are appreciated. You know who you are, and we are very grateful to you. More for the generosity than the money itself. You know what it's like. It's nice to be part of a community where people actually give back. There's an extra song as a reward to all of you. Yes, I know it's been a while since I put music on. But hey, these are COVID times. And oddly enough, for some of us, that has meant working more than ever, even while locked up at home. Anyway, this is a song from a group that I fell in love with back in the 90s. One of the great trip-hop groups of the time, Funky Porcini, 
And this is from the album, The Ultimate Empty Million Pounds. And the track is called Tears of Joy. That's T-I-E-R-S. Catch you next time. Generally, the people consider themselves devils surrounded by a lot of angels causing them enormous problems.